Consequence Podcast Network. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome to another episode of The Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast presented by the Consequence Podcast Network. I'm your host, Michael Monroeville Mall Rothman, and that's a nickname that actually is going to stick today because I'm talking to one of the legends out of the land of the dead, Greg Nicotero. Yes, yes, yes. We're going to be talking about Creepshow, but also we're going to be talking about Stephen King and his love for Stephen King and growing up in the aforementioned land of the dead. Uh, it's an interview that I've been waiting to do for a very, very, very long time. Uh, well, exactly a year, because uh, if you recall from my cover story for Consequence of Sound, I visited the Creep Show set back in March of 2019, and I had a great time. Uh, you know, just surrounded by people that love this medium and uh, this genre, and uh, Nicotero is leading the way, and uh, just talking to him in his office at the time, I could tell how much of a horror hound he was and uh, how much of a walking encyclopedia and history book he is too. He just had so many knickknacks all over his office and it was just a pleasure to listen to him and um, you know, surrounded by other journalists that didn't really get a chance to kind of have a one-on-one, a Frost v. Nixon uh, without all the politics if uh, you catch my drift. Uh, and so I did, I reached out to Shutter and I said, look, I really would love to speak to Greg one-on-one and they made it happen uh, right as he's about to give us a creep show Halloween special. So uh, it's a fun chat. Uh, it's a nice spooky chat for spooky times. And I think these spooky times are probably going to extend well beyond October. If, uh, don't quote me on it. Anyway, uh, enjoy. Uh, and I will see you on the other side. It's Greg Nicotero. Hey, this is Mike Rothman from uh, Consequences Sound, the Losers Club. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Well, I am good. I'm good. And I just want to say, first off, right off the bat, thank you so, so much for doing this. I know how crazy busy you are and with everything going on with production and post-COVID and everything, I just, you know... (laughs) I can't, couldn't appreciate it more. Um, well, it's my pleasure. I'm happy to do it. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for asking. No, I mean, look, I had the opportunity to actually be on the set last year. And, uh, you know, it was, it was, first off, it was just a wonderful day. And one of the things I really loved was just being in your office and listening to you talk <laughs> and seeing all the little knickknacks everywhere. And um, it kind of hit me because I was just like, here's a guy that's, he's, he's literally one of us. You know, I just kept thinking of like, uh, you know, the Todd Browning thing. He's like, one of us, one of us. And, um, and I know that when he had to like move out of the room, it was just almost like, oh no, I, God, we could talk forever. There's just so, I mean, you're like a walking encyclopedia for horror. So uh, I just really wanted to kind of go back to your roots a little bit because, you know, I feel like with horror fans and horror hounds and, and anyone tied to horror, like sometimes the origin story is that much more interesting. For you, you grew up, uh, around Evan City, Pittsburgh, the land of the dead. Uh, were you always a horror yep. fan? Well, you know, I, I I always considered myself very lucky because my parents were and still are huge movie buffs. You know, uh, between, you know, the Hammer Horror movies and James Bond and all, all this stuff, my parents were pretty much like opening weekend. They would pile us all into the car and we'd go to the theater and we would see everything. So it was really, it was really a unique, a unique time because we saw, you know, I remember seeing Planet of the Apes in the theater when it opened. I remember driving to Ohio to see Dracula Prince of Darkness when it came out because it was sort of a limited release. So between my dad and, and his brothers who, were big uh, were big horror movie fans. 
you know, I felt like I had a lot of people around me that really loved the genre in between going to the theater to see those movies and then my uncle reading Famous Monsters. Uh, that was my uncle Chuck. And then my uncle Sam, who wanted to be an actor and worked with George Romero in the crazies mm -hmm. and wrote a really great, a really great sort of one of the seminal articles about George. It was published in an early issue of Cinefantastique. I feel like it was kind of all right there. And mm -hmm. I was sort of this young, young, you know, impressionable kid who was surrounded by people who, who loved monster movies and universal horror and Wolfman and creature from the black lagoon. So uh, I didn't have any other choice other than to fall in love with it too. <laughs> well, what was it that you know gripped you about it? Was it just the the lore? Was it the the was it always the effects? Was it always just kind of like trying to deconstruct it to see how they did it, or was it just the idea that there's an aesthetic to horror that is almost oddly comforting? Like, what what, what do you think was the hook for you? Well, I'm sure when I was when I was really just starting to get interested in it when I was like eight or nine years old. It was by far the monsters, yeah. you know, like be being able to be in a situation where I was teaching myself how to draw, you know, uh, my dad's parents, my grandfather collected super, you know, movies on super eight. So it was like creature from the black lagoon and this Island earth and, you know, Abbott Costello meet Frankenstein. So he would play the super eight condensed castle films movies backwards and forwards <laughs> And my grandmother was an artist, so she would teach me how to draw. So I started drawing monsters. And immediately I was enthralled with just, you know, anything that could be scary. You know, the Wolfman I loved, Creature I loved, uh, Frank, you know, Glenn Strange Frankenstein. Oh, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I, think, I think because the Glenn Strange Frankenstein was a little more uh horrific a little scarier looking than Karloff was Karloff and you know again like sort of looking at the Basil Gogo's famous monsters covers I really fell in love with the monsters themselves and whether I found the movies scary or not scary at that time I really don't remember I just remember liking the monster stuff but again that stuff is all black and white mm -hmm. and then the first movie that I really, really remember seeing that, uh, that really kind of changed things for me was horror of Dracula because mm -hmm. it was in color. And, you know, the, the, that famous shot of Christopher Lee walking into the room with the blood red contact lenses and the blood around his mouth. And, you know, that just, uh, that just sort of rocked my world because it wasn't, you know, the sort of, classic universal monsters where there was really no blood you mm -hmm. know there was maybe a little bit of blood in creature from the black lagoon some slashes but those movies were relatively tame they were more it was more psychological because it was that sort of impressionistic you know german cinema that inspired those movies whereas now we were looking at you know blood and gore and you know glorious color <laughs> yeah yeah well, where you were from was there, you know, was because, you know, Romero had you know, shot Night of the Living Dead and, you know, it already had been shooting a ton of his other movies. Was there a reputation? You know, was it like was was his work almost kind of like um, the way we look at like ur urban legends and folklore around our town? I mean, I, I had a chance to visit Evan City. Oh God, I think it was like four or five years ago. And I remember just wandering around, going to the graveyard and, you know, going to my friend's house in Butler. And we watched Night of the Living Dead. And that night, it just had hit me even hard harder because there's just so much open land. And I just kept thinking like, oh, God, something's going to happen. Something's going to come out of the shadows. Was that something growing up that that that, that sort of um, knowing that those movies were filmed there? Did that affect maybe your relationship to horror at all? I think so, because it's it's one thing to to see a horror movie, but it's another thing to know that that horror movie was filmed, you know, 20 minutes from your backyard. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I grew up, I grew up in North Hills, which is literally 20 minutes from Evan city. Yeah. So, um, but you know, you got to also remember it was like 
home video really didn't exist yeah, that's until true. until like 1976, 1977. Um, so by then, I was 14 years old and Night of Living Dead, you know, at that point, most of the uh, experience and most of the connection that you would have with it would be if it was playing at the drive-in. You know, you'd go to the midnight movie or the drive-in movie. But when Dawn of the Dead was being made, that was a different that was a different scenario because Pittsburgh really celebrated the sequel to Night of Living Dead because mm-hmm. Night of Living Dead kind of put Pitch, put Pittsburgh on the map as yeah. well as George. So um, when Dawn of the Dead was being made, there was a lot of like you know Evening Magazine. There was a lot of coverage about you know oh you know Hollywood comes to Pittsburgh and. I remember seeing interviews with George um, talking about filming at the Monroeville Mall and and all of this stuff. So all of a sudden, it really was like, wow, you know, they're making another movie, and it's, <laughs> you know, this one is is also close to close to where I grew up. So it definitely made a difference um, knowing that those films were being were being made in my uh, you know in my hometown because they seemed a little more real. Yeah. You know, they seemed like, oh, I drove past there. And, uh, you know, so I think it definitely had an impact on, on me when, uh, when those movies were being made. And the fact that Pittsburgh was sort of celebrating its golden boy of George Romero when he was making Dawn of the Dead definitely kind of put it right in front of me. Oh, totally, know? totally. And at the time growing up, you know, you have family that's love and horror. What about your friends? Was it, you know, I, I've talked to a lot of uh, like masters of horror um, similar to you and that had grown up and they, they, they said, you know, the thing now is that like horror is, is huge. It's, you know, you got the conventions, you have yeah. the lifestyle, but at the time it really was a fringe thing. It was very punk rock. Um, did you feel that growing up? Was that something, did you feel like you're, it was kind of like a fringe thing? Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I don't think it would have, I wouldn't, uh, really consider horror punk rock at that point because it was really you know it was kind of nerdy mm-hmm. you know like you you like famous monsters was the only magazine until 19 early 1978 when fangoria came out and fangoria really was just you know severed heads and spurting blood and you didn't have a lot of people that really had the appetite for it. Uh, you know, certainly girls didn't like, I, I remember being in high school and trying to, I took a girl to see Friday the 13th and, uh, and then I took my girlfriend at the time to see John Carpenter's the thing. And she literally almost vomited in the movie theater. (laughs) So it wasn't, it wasn't the kind of thing that was like date night, you know, poltergeist was okay because poltergeist wasn't particularly gory. But if you got into any, you know, sort of mother's day or Mm -hmm. uh, my bloody Valentine, you know, because horror fans, like you couldn't get enough. You would see every single movie that came out, you know, silent scream, blood beach, you know, it didn't matter. You would go to the theater to see it because you just wanted more and more and more. Um, I never really felt that it was punk rock. I felt that it was a little bit more like, you know, you were like the creepy kid in fade to black. You know, you were the creepy kid who, who, you know, people really didn't understand why you liked that stuff. And, you know, I don't think people thought I was weird. I think people just were like, why would you watch that? I had one really good friend in high school and he and I would, would take the bus from North Hills, downtown Pittsburgh and go to the matinee every Saturday. And we'd go to a comic book shop called Ides and that's where I would buy my famous monsters. But there were not a lot of people in high school that really sort of embraced the fact that I really loved horror movies. Yeah. I think they just kind of thought, but they just thought, I didn't think, looked at me like I was punk rock. I think they looked at me like I was weird alternative. Yeah. Yeah. And, and talking about King for so long on this podcast, 
Um, and certainly talking to, you know, folks that grew up when, you know, the, you know, Carrie was first published and it was in bookstores and, and all. One of the, the consensus that I get is that he really did kind of change the game in time and basically, you know, catapult it into maybe not mainstream, but at least um, where it was on the mind a little bit more, you know, beyond October, beyond Halloween, beyond the Cineplex. And so I wanted to ask you, like, you know, as a horror fan growing up around that time, you know, Carrie hits, Salem's Lot hits. Where are you? When was your first brush with King? And did you feel that ripple effect a little bit? I did. And, you know, I would probably, I would probably say I didn't, I didn't catch Carrie when it first, when it was first published, um, you know, I, I obviously I saw the movie, but I didn't read it. I think the first King book that I read was Salem's Lot. Yeah. Uh, and and it, it terrified me. But one of the most amazing things about everything that, that Steve writes is the characters are relatable. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I would compare it a lot, a lot to the success of The Walking Dead. You know, every it's the every man. Yep. It's the, the guy who you, who you meet, who lives next to you, or the guy who, um, you know, who moves into the town and the town's a little, you know, he's, you know, he's sort of the new guy in town. So all of his, all of his books really embraced the fact that the lead character was somebody that you could relate to and somebody that you probably knew a guy just like, you know, just like him. Yeah. And, you know, I read The Stand. I, I mean, I read all of it. I think probably the book that really got me the most yeah. uh, was was Pet Cemetery. Oh, totally. I read it. In, <laughs> I read it in a day. Like I opened the book in the morning and by 10 o'clock at night, I was done. Like I used to I used to gauge reading books in terms of if I could put it down or not. Mm-hmm. And I think like, I remember reading like the Wolfen Whitley, Whitley Stryber. Ooh, yeah. And I remember reading a lot of books back then and pet cemetery. I read it in a day, like over Christmas vacation and I couldn't, I couldn't put it down. I was just absolutely mesmerized by that book and absolutely loved it. And I've read so many of his books and you know, the truth of the matter was between Salem, I think Salem's Lot is my favorite book of his, mm-hmm. uh, but I would probably say that the sensation that I had when I put one of his books down, I think Pet Cemetery was probably the most when I just sat it down and was like, oh my God, like I didn't even, I couldn't even, I didn't even know what to, what to do next. I was just so, so enthralled with, with, his storytelling, it just was, it's, you know, I mean, it's still amazing. Oh, it's terrifying. I, I mean, it's talking to so many different fans over the years. That's that's the one a lot of people go to. It's there, And it's, I mean, it scared him. I mean, he didn't even want to publish it because it was just so goddamn terrifying. Um, and there is something about it. There's something like purely American about it because it really is just this family who wants to have this American dream and it just shatters to pieces. Um but I, I, it's funny you mentioned Salem's Lot because I, I, I did wonder, and I didn't want to presume too much, but I wonder if it, if Mark Petrie, um, you know, the kid who literally is pretty much you at that point, um, building models, loving horror, and then horror unfolds around him. Was that a character, w- would you say that might have been like the first hook for you, that character, just being like, holy shit, this is me on page? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, it's it's interesting because we... We just finished shooting an episode of Creepshow called Model Kid. And it was written by John Esposito, who wrote Graveyard Shift, mm-hmm. uh, the feature like uh, the script for Graveyard Shift. And it's about a kid who paints monster models and reads magazine and was a little bullied in high school and sort of retreats to the world of monsters to sort of find his safe place. And I think definitely in terms of Salem's lot, and even, you know, look, if you look at the opening of creep show with Joe Hill, Oh, totally. It's kind of the same. It's sort of the same vibe. You know, Joe was, you know, George decorated the room with the comic books and the, and the model kits and the toys and stuff. So 
I think so much of, of what Steve writes is things that, that he's afraid of, things that he identifies with. And in terms of that particular character in Salem's Lot, yeah, because he he embraces horror and he embraces monsters. And then the next thing he knows, <laughs> they're all around him. And I think, you know, I think about that a lot. It's kind of funny that you would bring that up because you think about monsters and, and why they're so popular in our culture. Because if monsters really existed... You know, if there were vampires that would run around and and kill people and suck their blood or if there were werewolves or something, you would never stand there and watch what they're doing. You would never stand there and marvel and it's, you would never watch a werewolf transform in front of you. <laughs> no. You would be you would be running a million miles an hour. So what is it about us that wants to stand and watch it? What is it about us that is captivated by horror and captivated by by reading it and being scared or watching it. I'm really, I'm really fascinated with, with that concept of, you know, of being afraid of something, but you can't look away. And, you know, George used to talk, George used to talk about that all the time. He would talk about the roller coaster. George Mm -hmm. would say, you know, horror movies and uh, it's like the roller coaster and it terrifies you you scream, it's it's this cathartic release, and then when the ride's over, you get off and you just start laughing yeah. because th- you're just overwhelmed that you survived. Yeah. So, you know, horror is, is really the only genre that you get to experience those emotions and that adrenaline rush and then that instantaneous uh, feeling of being grateful that you <laughs> that you made it through. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's almost this weird sort of um, push and pull where it's like, you know, you, it, there is something, uh, you know, fun about being terrified without having really any consequences, you know, and it's it, it kind of takes you out of the real consequences of reality. Um, you know, I, uh, throughout this pandemic, yeah, where, we're, sure. where we're surrounded by horror, literally left and right, uh, especially this past year, um, it's it's interesting seeing how big the horror community has gotten because i think it answers your question there in the sense that we all want this to escape to because we just want a distraction and this distraction kind of embellishes the fears that we get to kind of have on a day-to-day basis without actually having to say oh okay well these headlines are fact what's funny about that too is you know i got an i got an email from suzanne romero george's wife and and she literally had said like this is george's universe without the humor Mm -hmm. because George always was kind of tongue in cheek about the zombie apocalypse and, you know, his characters and the zombies that were, you know, carrying, you know, the nurse zombie or, or the clown zombie or like whatever the zombies, you know, always had a satirical edge to them. But, you know, I never even would have imagined in a walking dead episode that, people would be hoarding toilet paper. Oh yeah. Like I kind of joked around with, I think I joked around with Angela Kang at some point, like, Oh, I guess we now have to write an episode where (laughs) they find a stash of toilet paper somewhere. Yeah. Because that you would, you, you can never begin to gauge how people will, will react to something on this sort of global scale. You know, I remember when we were shooting the mist and one of the things that we talked about a lot was how quickly things break down mm-hmm. because when we were, when we were in Shreveport and Steve came to, to visit and we were talking about, um, we were talking about the mist and Frank Darabont and, you know, the idea is that, you know, the mist surrounds the, the supermarket and within 24 hours, people are turning on each other and people are going crazy and you know, they, they just, they lose their minds. Yeah. And honestly, one of the things that was really intriguing for me is I kept thinking to myself, that would never happen. That yeah. Time. Yeah. Like it, people would never, would never drop all morality that quickly and allow fear to turn them into something else. Yeah. Boy, was I fucking wrong. I know. Well, like, that's it's crazy. You know, like, within within days, within days, 
people were people were absolutely freaking out. So again, you look at you look at what what Steve wrote in the mist and how quickly it just changes uh, and people's true colors come out and how fear will will dictate instantaneously how you judge people, how you look at people, how you react to people. And, you know, we watched it happen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when this started happening and then I remember going to CVS like four or five times throughout the week, just being like, God, still no toilet paper. And I, I turned to my girlfriend at the time and I said, you know, if you wrote everything that happened down into a screenplay just in the last week, everyone would say this is too unbelievable, too preposterous and too like cartoonish. You know, yeah. like, like, why would yeah. everyone nobody lose their would mind? Be- Nobody would believe it. It's wild. And yeah, nobody would believe it. You're, yeah. It's, but it, it is true, though. Like, and, and I think one of the reasons okay. why Romero and, and King were such a perfect match was because they're both great at escalation. Um, you know, you read The Stand and it's this kind of uh, just gorgeous dance of just how the world collapses. And same with, you know, uh, Dawn of the Dead, Night of the Living Dead, and, and especially even The Crazies, um, which oddly enough, revisiting that uh, a couple of nights ago, I was like, wow, this actually seems a little bit more <laughs> like what we're at right now. Yeah. And this is even heightened. This is even more heightened um, than that reality. Um, so that's been definitely disturbing this year is just seeing how quickly everyone becomes the split portion in the mist. And I think that that movie, you know, there are a couple movies everyone mentioned earlier on when this pandemic started it was like contagion was a big one. But then, yeah, I think people did right. start seeing the mist and they're like, Oh shit. Yeah. This is hitting a little too close to home. Um, yeah. It's uh, it, it was kind of, it was kind of strange just because of the, the psychology involved. And, and when you were talking about, you know, uh, how people respond to Steve's books and, you know, the stand, which, you know, still is, is to me, you know, one of the great masterpieces of my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, the idea of trying to get out of the city, you know, that scene when they're, when they're uh, in the tunnel oh, yeah. and all the cars and, you know, I'll 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 never forget that moment in the book about how absolutely terrifying it was. But you know, you 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 have to I think the thing that, that this year shows us more than anything is you really have to at your core hope that it doesn't get as bad as you think it could get. Mm-hmm. I think there was a lot of intriguing things that happened this year but you know i would have never imagined that you know that a pandemic would be okay sit in your house Mm -hmm. and never and don't leave but you know restaurants will still cook for you because i kept i kept saying to my wife like what if restaurants didn't cook what if you couldn't get food that's when it would get really bad yeah like okay don't leave your house but we'll still have people leave their houses and go to restaurants and cook for you. Yeah. I, so I was like, wait, so are you saying that in a zombie apocalypse scenario, people still have to go to work and make Bob's big boy uh, hamburgers for mm-hmm. you? So I, that was another thing that I had a hard time sort of wrapping my head around. You know? Oh, yeah. The, the, the fact that the, the comforts are still there and yet there's still, you know, pandemonium. Like, you know, and when the chips are really down, you're not going to have your door dashes, yeah, your right. grub hubs and stuff. And and that's something that's that's having lived this year. I don't want to see. I definitely don't want to see when that certainly goes away because I can't even imagine what it's going to be like at that point. And it's certainly not the stand. It's I mean, even King mm-hmm. said that outright in the beginning. It's like, look, this isn't Captain Trips, but we've gone crazy a yeah. little bit. Well, I wanted to talk yeah. kids, you know, when we talked last year, you know, you brought up that, you know, your first, your first real brush was visiting, uh, the creep show set. Yeah. And I wanted to know what that day was like. And, you know, I know that, um, you had met, uh, Romero through your uncle. Um, and that, yes. so what was the day like though? And what do you remember what they were shooting? Um, what the vibe was like, who was there? Well, it was, it was multiple day. I mean, I remember what the first day was like because, um, you know, after I had after I had met George, George was kind of like, "Oh, you should come, you know, visit the offices because they were down at 
uh, Fort Pitt Boulevard uh, in Pittsburgh. So I had gone and visited a couple times, but it was really uh, visiting the the set for Creepshow. They were in pre-production. So I went to the offices and when I parked, I didn't know where to go. There was like an old abandoned school up on the hill and then there was a gymnasium next to the parking lot. And the gymnasium was where they were building the sets. And the production office was kind of up the hill. So, you know, I think I talked a little bit about like my first day of going to visit Mm -hmm. when I had sort of didn't really know where to go. And I walked into the, (laughs) to the, to the gymnasium and that's where they were building the set for the crate. And then uh, Savini's lab was off to the side and then somebody went, Oh no, no, no. You want to go up the hill. And then I went up the hill and that's where George's office was. And, Christine, his wife at the time, that's where they were. So, you know, the first time that I had gone to visit, it was really just, you know, George had said, yeah, come on out and say hi. And uh, they weren't filming yet. They were still building the sets and Mm -hmm. it was in pre-production because that's when they had kind of said, hey, you know, we're, you know, we're going to start shooting soon. And, you know, if if you want a job, you know, we'll give you a production assistant job. And I was kind of like, nah, I could never, I could never really do that because I'm getting ready to go off to, you know, college soon. And, you know, I'm going to be pre-med. And so I appreciate the, the offer, but if you're cool, you know, I would just like to come in and and visit while you're filming and just kind of see what it's like. And Mm -hmm. that was kind of, that was kind of how it started. So that first day of me just sort of walking around, like not really knowing I'd never been on a movie set before. I didn't even know what, what a movie set was like. And the irony is finding myself kind of being drawn to Savini's lab, which was in the corner of the, of the gymnasium. And he had this weird, crazy like wallpaper on the walls. And it was just, it was just like a room, like two rooms. And he had the barber chair with the mirrors on the wall where oh he was God. doing his, uh, doing his makeup tests. And if, if I'm not mistaken, cause this was a long time ago, I think if it wasn't the first day that I was visiting, it was one of the first days was when Adrian Barbeau had flown in from LA to get her face cast because Tom had to do the, the bullet, the bullet hit in the forehead. And mm-hmm. then he did a little fake, a little fake head of her when you see the remains of the attack from Fluffy. Mm-hmm. So I remember being sort of off in the corner um, in Tom's room when Adrian Barbeau had come in and then George like came running into the room with somebody else it might have either been like john harrison or or nimus andrea who's the key grip but like all these people sort of came running in to say hello to her and it was like oh this is like you know this is like a big hollywood actress came to pittsburgh and they were all so excited to kind of run in and and meet her and i was like a fly on the wall i was just sort of sitting off in the corner oh my god and uh <laughs> yeah and you know it's it was strange for me because i didn't I didn't know what to expect. As far as I was concerned, I was like looking at the guy who had directed Dawn of the Dead, which mm-hmm. was to me, you know, Jaws and Dawn of the Dead were the two movies that just, I was like, wait a minute, there are guys that you can get, you can hire them and they build a shark and, <laughs> and they're special effects guys. So up until seeing Dawn of the Dead, I wanted to do, I wanted to do like physical effects and miniatures because i loved all the Irwin Allen stuff and Star Trek. So I was like, I want to build spaceships. Like I want to build the Jupiter two, or I want to build, you know, the building from the towering Inferno. Like I loved all that stuff. And I was really big into miniatures. And, you know, I think when Dawn of the Dead came out and I saw the stuff that Savini had done, then I went, wait a second, like model making and stuff would be really cool, but I want to make monsters. Like I had loved monsters, but I never really understood. I never thought about like, oh, well, Jack Pierce and, and, you know, the Westmores and, 
for some reason, I didn't connect the dots. Yeah. I just was looking at like, maybe in my head, the monsters, I didn't want to admit that the monsters weren't real, that there were makeup artists that made the monsters. I think in my head, I knew who Jack Pierce was because I read Famous Monsters and I knew who the Westmores were. But I think I had a little bit of a disconnect in my brain. Like, oh, I don't want to believe that somebody, that Millicent Patrick sculpted that creature from the Black Lagoon because it's a creature and it's yeah. a monster. And I couldn't imagine that people worked on it. But then when Jaws came out, uh, I just wanted to know more about how they did it. Like, I think Jaws was the movie that sort of flipped a switch and it went from like, okay, I just need to know how they did it. And back then there wasn't a lot of, you know, the internet didn't exist. You would have to like scour you yeah. know, like Time Magazine or Newsweek Magazine and they would have a little blurb and they'd have a couple pictures of the shark behind the scenes. And I was just like, oh my God, how did they do that? So going from like 1975 to 1977 and then into the early 80s, all of that sort of how they do that exploded. You know, in the early 70s with Dick Smith, there wasn't a lot of behind the scenes of The Exorcist. Like mm -hmm. you, they didn't want to, they didn't want to pull the curtain aside and let you see how they did it because your imagination really fed into the hysteria of The Exorcist or mm -hmm. The Omen or, or, or Jaws. You know, they wanted your imagination to feed into. And I think in, even with Jaws, they talked about like, oh yeah, they had a real shoot and they shot real sharks. And because they wanted you to believe, they didn't want you to go to the theater understanding how it was done because oh, yeah, that yeah. would ruin the illusion. But by the time we got into the late seventies, the illusion was this is how we did it. And that's how they got you into the theater. So Tom Savini, Stan Winston, Rick Baker, Rob Bottin, those were the names that were selling tickets mm -hmm. to get into the theater. They were actually saying, oh, you want to see how it was done? Well, look, here's the curtain. We're going to open the curtain and we're going to show you how Rick Baker created American Werewolf in London or how Rob Bottin, you know, created Werewolves for the Howling. And it, it changed. Yeah. And I think I was, I was born right at the right time to be there that when the curtain was pulled open, I was like one of the first faces pressed up against there, looking in, going, "Wow, oh my God, that's how they, that's how they did it." And 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 I just couldn't escape it. And listen, if you talk to anybody that loves the genre at that time, you know, I always joke around about the fact that between between Ray Harryhausen, Hammer Films. Uh, famous monsters and that time period between like 1977 and 1980, those four things, all of us that, that are genre people, we can all relate to it Yeah, because we all loved Ray Harry. We are all captivated by the sense of wonder of Ray Harryhausen and stared at the pictures in famous monsters magazine and would, you know, watch the the color version of the Hammer movies and were just completely blown away. And then, of course, when you get into, like I was just talking about, that that time period between like 1977 and probably 1984, 85, that, you know, I, I, I always feel like it started with Dawn of the Dead mm -hmm. and then Day of the Dead. Day of the Dead was, you know, Dawn of the Dead was A and Day of the Dead was Z and everything in between. Um, was was there to really, like I said, pull back the curtain, and and you just wanted to know how they did it, and you 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 relished it and you reveled in it, and uh, it was really I feel so lucky that I got into the industry uh, at that time because I feel like it all started to change once you got. Uh, into the late 80s and, you know, the Nightmare on Elm Street movies yeah. and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies and the Halloween movies, you know, they're, they're, they started morphing. And by the time you got into the mid-90s and it was all VFX and CGI, you know, the idea of how they do that 
it went away because mm-hmm. now it's like, well, how'd they do that? Oh, well, they just hit backslash enter. <laughs> they programmed a couple of things on their computer and that's how they did it. So that sense of wonder really doesn't exist anymore. Which uh, is- and, and that, that was really, really, that was really sad for me because that sense of wonder is what inspired, what inspired people like Sam Raimi and, and, Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino and Alex Aja and Guillermo del Toro. Those guys were all inspired by the same things that I were. Now those movies have a different, you know, they just are, they're just perceived differently by a lot of people. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, it's, we've seen a very interesting turn of events. I feel like over the last five years where you're starting to get, I don't know if it's maybe a new generation that kind of grew up on having that nostalgia for wanting those practical effects to have that sense of space. But I do wonder, and this is something, certainly something we talked about on the set, but you know, what do you think is going to be like the future of, of effects, you know, with it being like CGI versus practical and, I mean, do you think that more and more films are going to embrace practical? Do you think they're going to be even able to, I mean, with COVID happening and all these new, um, you know, uh, things that are limitations on the set. Are there, is, do you think there's even going to be time to be able to do practical effects? Cause I know it takes a while to set up even, you know, five to 10 seconds of a shot sometimes. Um, where do you see it going? Um, you know, being in the front lines of it. Well, listen, as a filmmaker, you have to be committed to it. Mm-hmm. You have to be committed to, to using those tools. And for me, Creepshow allows me that opportunity to be committed to creating practical effects. Yeah. Um, I'm, I, I will always be committed to it because it's, it's really my first love. You know, I mean, I've been fortunate enough to sort of expand my, my horizons into producing and directing and writing because, you know, I've been writing scripts on Creepshow as well. I would have never imagined that, that's where my makeup effects career was going to lead me. But I'll I'll be really honest. I'm very, very committed to the practical elements that we do for Creepshow. And, you know, we have, as we shoot episodes, it's very, very clear to me that when I'm not directing, I want to be the effects guy. Yeah. Like I want to be on set and go, listen, we should put the camera here and use this foreground element. And, you know, I've, I feel like I've had the, the good fortune with walking dead to keep, uh, to keep my skills honed and sharp for, for a, an, an 11 year stretch mm-hmm. of being on set, of being on set every single day for 11 years. Um, creating zombies, doing a lot of practical stuff. And when we started shooting Creepshow this season, I directed the first two episodes. And it was really all about um, me sort of designing these kind of outlandish, great creature effects and knowing how to shoot them and how to get the best out of them and the best out of the crew. Yeah, And I, I feel like my experience in the years that I've been doing it make the effects on the show look better because I know how to not slow production down by creating things that, um, that are thought out. And, you know, I know, you know, like if I'm shooting a scene with actors over here and we need 45 minutes to set up a, a werewolf puppet on the other set, I'll be like, guys, you set that up while I'm shooting this. And mm-hmm. when I'm done filming this, we'll start spin the camera around and shoot the werewolf. And, you know, I think because that's the way that my brain has worked since, since 1984, um, the show, you know, Creepshow benefits from 35 years of, of me being dedicated to making practical effects work. Yeah. You know, listen, I, I I think CGI is a great tool and there's a lot of really cool things, amazing things that we would have never been able to do uh, if that didn't exist. But I always talk about the fact that it's about which tool, you know, when, as a filmmaker, your obligation is to provide <clears throat> the director 
uh, and the producer with the tools to paint this beautiful painting. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those tools involve a lot of practical work. And sometimes those tools involve a lot of digital work. You know, I, I was never the kind of person that fought the digital revolution because what I noticed in the mid nineties, once VFX came into their own, there were a lot more movies that were greenlit that had practical effects in it because all of a sudden there was a way to get, um, to get creatures to walk across the room mm -hmm. without having to figure out how to build a giant walking monster. You know, like Jurassic Park's a perfect example. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Jurassic Park, they still use full-size practical T-Rex puppets and raptor puppets and the VFX filled in the blanks and vice versa. And, you know, the shot when the T-Rex is banging its head on the car and then the animatronic head leaves the frame and then the digital T-Rex walks from Jeff Goldblum's car to the other car mm -hmm. all in one shot your brain just can't process what <laughs> yeah. it just saw Yeah, because we're so accustomed to like, Oh, well, you know, where did they get a real T-Rex to, to walk across the set that day? You mm -hmm. know, it's, it's just, so for me, I feel like when they started making a lot of bigger movies, you know, if you look at, you know, men in black, I, I'll reference men in black and spawn because, to me, I remember those were two sort of big budget visual effects movies mm -hmm. that they probably wouldn't have made the same way before the digital VFX world took over. So, but when they start greenlighting these movies, that also meant that there was a lot more work for practical makeup effects houses because they were doing, you know, Alien versus Predator movies and they were doing Spawn and they were doing you know, all these, all these different kinds of projects that they probably could not have made if VFX didn't exist. Oh yeah. No, 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 no. And, and honestly, it really did shift around there because I, I mean, I remember even just being in as a, as a movie goer being like, wait a second, something's different. Um, around the early, especially in the early two thousands when it just became common to be like, all right, well, let's just ship it over to the digital bay and we'll, you know, we'll mark it up all there. Um, you know, it's, it's funny you mentioned that you want to be able to flex the muscle for, you know, practical effects and to, to kind of get into the, the makeup and effects with the creep show Halloween special, it's all animation. And, you know, and I know that you had been circling survivor type for a while and that's one that I, I, I just adored. And one of my friends a long time ago did a, a short that, um, he said that one of the, the biggest challenges was like, yeah, well, it's a one location place, one man awesome great for low budget but at the same time how the hell are we going to make this convincing for you that loves to figure this stuff out and loves to make the, the these kind of um impractical practical uh concepts a reality was there a part of you that was uh that regrets being able to do like to having to do this in animation right now currently or did you find some parts about the animation process that were actually a lot of fun and maybe in living in ways that you didn't expect well, listen, the survivor, you know, when, when Creepshow got the green light, mm -hmm. uh, Steve was the first person I reached out to. And he said, I got the perfect story for you. And he sent survivor type. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh my God, this is, this is the story that I remember for years and years and years. I sat down, I adapted the, the story into a screenplay. And everyone was just, we were so excited about the fact that we had this story none of us really stepped back to figure out like, well, how the fuck are we going to do it? Like creep show is a low budget show shooting in Atlanta, Georgia. So, you know, at one point one of the producers said, well, there's a lake over here and we could go shoot in the lake. And I'm like, no, 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 no. It can't be a lake because he can't just swim off the Island and go to shore. Yeah. So we talked about like, do we build this Island in the parking lot of the studio and put blue screen all around it? And we just have to comp the ocean in. And, you know, as soon as we started filming season one, like the first couple of days of shooting, and I realized how difficult it was going to be to shoot an episode every three and a half days and to 
you know, continue the anthology spirit of, oh, okay, and then you have to bring in a whole new cast, uh, a whole new, you know, you have to create a whole new world every three and a half days. So I called the network and I said, listen, guys, we're not going to be able to do survivor type justice with this. You know, I can't fly to LA and shoot on the beach. I can't go down. I mean, at one point I was like, well, maybe we should fly to Florida and we would go to Florida for a couple of days and we would shoot. I was looking at pictures of islands off of, you know, off of South Carolina yeah. and, you know, Hilton head and Tybee. I was looking at all these places trying to figure out how we were going to move the crew over to shoot this. And I just realized, I'm like, we're not going to have the money. I mean, like, it's a low-budget show. So I was the one that had to call the network and say, guys, we're not going to be able to make this work. It's just not financially feasible. Um, So I reached out to Steve and just said, hey, so we're Survivor Type is never going to make sense for us to shoot. What about Grey Matter? Grey Matter, I so feel, good. has a perfect has a perfect creep show vibe to it. Um, you know, I, I called Adrian and Giancarlo and Tobin, and they were all in. And it was actually a much more contained story that mm-hmm. gave us the opportunity to to do Grey Matter. So, you know, in June, when we were talking about Creep Show, and we had all the scripts written for season two, and you know, that was back when, like, oh, we're going to go back to work in two or three weeks. And then yeah. they would push it. Oh, we're going to go back to work in a couple of weeks. Uh, we came up with, you know, with this idea of doing an animated show mm-hmm. so that we could get something cool on the air. And I immediately said, let's do Survivor Type. Yeah. I said, just the idea of being able to see Richard Panzetti laying on the island with, without his foot and then without his leg and then without both of his legs, that would have been in and of itself, you know, a $20 million movie just to, just to digitally remove the body parts of a real actor or show a real actor, um, starving to death. Mm -hmm. Whereas the animated format actually gives us the opportunity to to push the the boundaries visually that we that would have been absolutely uh, almost impossible to do practically without a ton of money. Yeah. So Survivor type, I you know, and you know the interesting thing about the animated show is it's not like fully animated where there's like lips moving and it's a it's not that. I mean, we wanted to keep the style of yeah of a comic book going. So the animation is kind of like uh, live action comic book panels come to life, you know, or comic book panels come to life. There's a little bit of movement that draws you around. And um, so I thought about survivor type and immediately was like, well, this is the one we have to do. It's perfect. And then I think, I think two days later I said, wait a minute. We need. What if we did a Stephen King, Joe Hill double feature? Because I loved twittering from the Circus of the Dead. But if you read that short story, it's all tweets. Yeah, it's literally you're reading the <laughs> tweets as as Blake is as Blake is telling the story. And I loved the story. And I kept thinking, God, you really can't do that. Uh, you can't do that story right without seeing what she's tweeting about. Um. And then when the idea came to me of like, well, why don't we do, why don't we do survivor type and Twittering? And we have a Stephen King, Joe Hill double feature. Uh, it, it, it like, it was so right in front of me that I couldn't even believe that it took me like two days to, to put it together and, you know, called the network and said, Hey, what if we, what if we had a Stephen King, Joe Hill double feature? And they're like, wait, do you think we can pull that off? And, uh, and the next thing, the next thing I knew, you know, I mean, listen, who, who would not want, love the opportunity to share, uh, to share an episode with your dad or your son. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I love both of them and I had so much fun with Joe and got to know Joe really well. I didn't really know Joe that well before we did season one. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, he just, you know, he really sort of 
was all in. And, you know, one of his, one of his, he only had a few um, things that he really wanted to do for Twittering. And he said, what if we hire Eric Powell, who designs the goon to design the zombies in the circus? And I'm like, you're fucking kidding, right? (laughs) So we hired Eric. Eric designed the zombies. So I have drawings that Eric Powell sent me of what the zombies would look like in Joe Hill's zombie circus. Oh, awesome. So I'm like, wait, how does it get any better than this? And then, oh, and then we, we started talking about voice talent and, you know, I've, I've known Kiefer for 20 years cause I worked on 24 with him. Mm-hmm. I worked on mirrors with him and, uh, you know, we kind of hit right at that part of the pandemic where a lot of people were kind of like at home going, yeah, you know, I mean, I'm really excited to get back to work. And, uh, and Kiefer basically immediately said, yeah, and loved the idea that we were, he was kind of going full circle. He's like, well, you know, the first, one of the first movies that I did in the United States was stand by me. Mm-hmm. Yep. And he, he wanted to do it cause it was a Stephen King story and he loved creep show and, uh, and then we got, you know, and then we got Joey King and she loved the material and loved the story. So I feel like everything kind of lined up weirdly in this, in this really crazy, like scenario of getting uh, Steve and Joe and Kiefer and Joey. And, and now we have our little sort of animated Halloween special for creep show that I'm hoping people dig it and enjoy the ride because it's fun and it's different and it's uh you know i haven't had never you know directed animation before so that was a whole other world because you know when you do when you do storyboards and then you put the storyboards together in an animatic and that sort of usually you do that so that you're sort of educating the crew as to how you want to shoot a certain sequence so i had done a lot of that on walking dead and i've done a lot of storyboarding and animatics and that kind of stuff so to just take that idea and expand it into you know a 20 you know a 20 minute segment that you know takes you back and forth through different emotional beats i mean it's challenging because the emotion you know the actors are the ones that impart the emotion into certain scenes and having a, a a drawing and not having an actor's face be able to emote it's a big challenge yeah. Oh, it's so all... I feel really, I feel, lo- I feel lucky that we were able to get, uh, you know, Joey and Kiefer because they added, they took it to a whole another level. I can't wait to see it. I mean, it's, it's so exciting and it's, it's just so emblematic of your entire trajectory. I mean, to think that you started thinking you're going to be in pre-med, you go to creep show, something st- probably stays in the back of your head, changes your life altogether. And here you are, directing animation now which is just what a resume what a resume well 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 one of the first one of the first things that i did when when we shut down was you know one of the stories that we're doing for creep show for season two is mums which is joe hill's story yeah and uh and i adapted the story and wrote the script for it so when we shut down, the first thing I did was, okay, well, I got a couple minutes until we start shooting again so I can write the script. And then, you know, five months later, we started working again. But it gave me, it, it gave me a chance to, to write another script for the show because I've written a couple episodes this season. And, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, sort of taking the time to be able to write was really, was, was awesome. That's great. So it's it's definitely a a 180 from the hustle and bustle. I would imagine um, in the earlier 2019 where it it seemed like none of you guys were sleeping and it was fun, (laughs) but I could tell that it was a marathon run. So, well, it's, it's (laughs) funny you would say that because a lot of people, you know, when this all started, we were one day away from shooting. Oh, uh, when we got shut down. So it was, I was sort of equating it to like being in a car accident and, you know, like crashing your car at, at 50 miles an hour because you're going so fast. Mm-hmm. 
and then you slam on the brakes. And like two days later, all your muscles hurt because your body was traumatized by the actual act of slowing down that quickly. And I really believe that a lot of people, when, when everything, when they slammed the brakes on the planet, I really think that a lot of people had that reaction yeah. of like, fuck it. I like, I'm like, it hurts. It hurt to like, I felt like I had whiplash and I felt like I pulled all the muscles in my body. And it's just, I didn't, because I had never gone from, you know, 80 miles an hour to zero uh, ever in my life. And when you have people that, that they thrive on that, on that energy of collaborating with other actors and other filmmakers and crew people and director of photography, uh, and then it stops, like it's really, it really was psychologically for me, it was really hard. Like it, it really, it did, you know, it did a little damage um, with, me, with me just trying to sort of process what my world was going to be like. Mm -hmm. And, um, that was, you know, I mean, sort of, and then just kind of watching and understanding what was happening to people around the world and not believing a word that I was hearing on the news. And, yeah. yeah. You know, it just, it all sort of compounded into a really, um, a really dark, crazy place. And, you know, I'm glad that we're, that I'm hopeful that we're through, some of the worst of it and that yeah you know people are getting getting their lives you know in order and dealing with things that they need to deal with and grieving and surviving and you know whatever but yeah. it, it's been a it's been a strange time obviously it's definitely been a strange time um but uh you know it's the little things that you gotta hold on to and uh creep show certainly one of them i i'm when this was announced was totally stoked <clears throat> and Cannot wait to to see this, and I'm sure all our listeners and our readers are going to be absolutely enthralled. Um, Greg, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm sorry that we went over, um, also, but um, no, no, it's fine. It's, <laughs> it's by the way, it's my fault that we went over because I was blah 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 blah. blah. No, I love that. I it, it's so funny. You and you and the uh, Tom Savini are so similar in the sense that I feel like you guys got to start doing it. You just go <laughs> go start your ASMR uh, channel. And I swear to God, you'd make billions because it's your voices are just uh, it's so soothing and so nice. But um, well, look, look, good luck to everything, and um, can't wait to see Thank the you. special. Thank I can't you. wait to see season two, and um, can't wait to see what's next. I mean, look, you did animation. Uh, next thing you're going to be shooting in space. So, um, you know, um, uh, well, you know, be careful <laughs> what you wish for. Yeah, right. Well, hey, we'll talk soon, and uh, yeah. have a happy Halloween. Thanks, man. You too. Take Later. care. <laughs> Well, there you have it. I think we're all very intrigued to see how this special is going to unfold, especially Survivor Type, as he outlined it. I know I am. Well, we're going to find out because the Creepshow Halloween special drops on Shutter this Thursday, October 29th. And you can hear our thoughts on the special shortly after, if not that very night. We're still seeing when we're going to get screeners for it. Uh, but that's not all. As you'll see today, you have another episode to stream. Randall's interview with the authors behind The Science of Stephen King. So if you ever wanted a Mythbusters episode on Stephen King, well, there you have it. Uh, beyond that, we have our own Halloween special dropping next Friday, the last of our October episodes. And then in November, we'll be going down not the Miracle Mile, but the Green Mile. So you better start reading. And then we're also still a part of the Room 237 pop-up here in Chicago. Uh, we went last weekend, we met a few of you constant listeners, and let's just say it's a great party. Uh, they recreated all of the sets from The Shining. I was personally just struck, awestruck, by how they did the rec room with Jack's typewriter. It just looked literally like the, the set from the movie. It's fucking amazing. Um, and uh, But better yet, it, it felt totally saved. Uh, we walked around, uh, we congregated, yada, 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 and totally felt safe. And so, you know, if you're in the area, don't miss it. And you could even grab theme masks uh, for The Shining and The Overlook uh, as you're walking around. 
Um, and odds are you've probably already seen all of uh, the, the partying and festivities on our socials, which, by the way, if you haven't, and it's probably because you don't follow our socials, so you should do that. Uh, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, and if you want even more, you can follow us on our Patreon, patreon.com slash thebarons for all that fresh extra content. And if you're really feeling nice, you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and give us some bright red Pennywise clown noses to your favorite, your devoted, your only Losers Club. Until then, well, I'll be seeing you over long days and you know the rest. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. But you know you want somebody to treat you good. Consequence Podcast Network.